Talo Palawa, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Wau Okoroi Hawkins. Coming up first... Loss and damage is just acknowledging that actually uh, the other two to some degree have failed. Pacific countries optimistic as climate loss and damage financing finally makes it on the COP27 agenda. Also... The industry is very adamant that we raise concern along the lines of aviation connectivity to support capacity... Reviving tourism, a major item on a long list of urgent tasks facing Vanuatu's newly formed government. And later on... Inside the final 10 seconds then, never been to a World Cup final Rugby League World Cup semi-final spots locked in as Samoa Stantonga and Fiji give New Zealand a run for their money. A climate finance expert says it's only right that rich countries should pay poor ones for the damage of more than a century of belching climate gases. The two-week annual UN Climate Summit kicked off in Egypt overnight, and for the first time, the issue of loss and damage financing has finally made it onto the official agenda at the COP27 climate conference. Wealthy nations, including the United States and some EU countries, have blocked it for years. This is big news for the Blue Pacific, as it could mean seeing greater financial assistance in the light of adversity. RNZ reporter Hamish Cardwell spoke with University of Otago Director for Climate and Energy Finance Group, Ivan Diaz-Rainey, who says there would have been a lot of reluctance from developed countries because it opens up a whole load of potential liabilities to Western governments that have been polluting since the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, so I guess what's your analysis of the significance of this finally making it on to the agenda, loss and damage and things? Yeah, I think it's indicative of of, of our times, right? Uh, so it really is creating, I think, a new category of finance. Uh, so we've had uh, mitigation finance, which is trying to stop climate change through renewables and energy efficiency. We've got adaptation finance, which is learning to live with uh, um, the consequences of climate change, so whether it's uh, seawalls and so on. But loss and damage is just acknowledging that actually uh, the other two to some degree have failed and and people in particular in the developing world are being disproportionately affected. Um, and so there needs to be a mechanism to for reparation. Um, and in a sense, it's a new funding category, but it, underlying it is a, is, a, is a long tension that has existed in climate negotiations between developed and developing countries. The um, the the specifics of what it could end up being the mechanism. Do you have a sense of what uh, an appropriate or a good kind of way of managing that would be? I know that that will a lot. My understanding is that a lot of the devil will be in that in the detail around that, what it actually looks like. Is that right? Yeah, look, and I, th- I think it's very early days. I think we've just got to the stage where they've succeeded getting it on the agenda. And there would have been a lot of reluctance from developed countries to get that because it opens up a whole load of potential liability to 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 to, to Western governments that have been polluting for, for since the Industrial Revolution in the case of Europe, right? Um, and I see there's various proposals, so like a mosaic of of potential funding bodies. I think some of the developing developed countries want that. And I guess what you might argue that that's a little bit bit fuzzy and and not as structured. Uh, I think some of the UN bodies are arguing for like a centralized fund uh, that sort of distributes after these events. And to me, that and, and it helps with insurance. 
I, you know, I think the day for patchworks, and in this context, right, I, I, a patchwork approach it just does not seem mosaic to some, pat, patchwork to others, right? Uh, I, I think a structured approach, uh, this is a global global problem. Uh, and I'm sorry to say, you know, us in the West are going to have to pay for some of, some of the damage we've caused to our lifestyles. Do you know what it could, like what, what, what a number that could start being put against this would be um, from a perspective of what's likely in terms of what Western governments are going to kind of accept, and but actually what the real number is underneath in terms of the, the liability for, for Western countries? Well, the real number, who knows, right? I mean, um, so I think the, there's a figure of uh, over the last uh, so these are the vulnerable, most vulnerable nations. They call them the V20, but there's more than 20 countries in there. Um, I think they estimate that it's around 500 uh, billion US dollars over the last decade in damages, right? Which which actually doesn't sound like that much, uh, but you know, for these countries, it's an awful lot of money, and it accounts to you know the, the cumulative GDP of about 20 percent in any one year, right? Uh, and of course, that's that's in the past, right? And what we've seen over the last uh, couple of years is just these risks intensifying obviously the floods in pakistan with you know thousands of deaths or uh, you know 1700 estimated deaths uh you know so if it's been 500 billion over the last uh, t- decade it's going to be obviously m- m- upwards of that going forward and it depends what, what world we end up with do we end up with a 2 degree world uh, I think it's fair to say we're beyond a 1.5 degree world. Um, uh, you know, if we end up with a three or four degree world, that th- those losses would be huge, right? And then you know, you have real impacts on 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 Western countries, and this is what people don't understand. You know, we, we, we should be right; we're fine here. But you know, if if people find it impossible to live in in the equatorial part of the Earth, they are going to try and migrate. And it's a yeah, it's interesting. To, I know I won't jump forward to that. Look, do you think how likely are you to, that that there could end up this meeting could end up with some real concrete money put towards it? I mean, the fact that it's even been discussed is interesting. But do you think it has any chance of success, or and what does success look like? Uh, look, I, I, I think I, I think there will be something done, whether it's this mosaic um, or whether it's something much more structured. Uh, I suspect it's probably, you know, again, the history of this is that uh, there'll be some reasonably good sounding promises, uh, but it won't be hard and fast. And then whether the money will actually flow is another matter. And, and so we've seen that in the history. So, um, you know, the, in, as part of the Paris Agreement, uh, Developed countries were meant to hand over about 100, uh, 100 billion every year to developing nations, and they've really not kept to that. So, yeah, it's uh, it's challenging. I think something will have to come out of it. I, I think, you know, I, I think given the politics, the you know, the the key countries, uh, you know, you've got the Biden administration, you've got Europe committed. Um, so, yeah, I think the mood music is is positive to achieve something. Vanuatu has a new prime minister following last month's snap election. Union of Moderate Parties President Ishmael Kalsakar was elected prime minister unopposed on Friday. Lady Lewis has the detail.
Shortly after the vote, which saw MPs on both sides of the House cast their ballots in support of the unopposed Ishmael Kalsakal, the newly elected Prime Minister thanked all the members present, then turned his attention to appointing his Cabinet Ministers. Some of the big appointments include Sato Kilman, a former Prime Minister himself, being appointed Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Lands. John Salong has been given the finance portfolio, and Ralph Reganvanu, who was leader of opposition in the last parliament is now Minister of Climate Change. The new government will need to hit the ground running, with many economic challenges still facing the heavily tourism-reliant Pacific nation, which is still emerging from the pandemic. Meanwhile, the Vanuatu Tourism Office has outlined its priorities for the new government following the appointment of the new Minister of Tourism, Matai Seremaya. Chief Executive Adela Isakaru says pre-COVID-19 tourism made up around 40% of GDP and work is underway to understand where that figure sits now. She told Lydia Lewis, Seremaya steps into the role at a crucial and pivotal point in the country's COVID recovery phase after the tourism sector was decimated by the restrictions of the pandemic. We are excited that at least we have a new government in place. We have a new Honourable Minister who's coming to the portfolio of tourism. The industry is very adamant that we raise areas of concern along the lines of aviation connectivity to support the capacity opportunities for regrowing our market opportunities. And this is something that we're grateful by still having a national airline. We will definitely raise this with our Minister of Tourism, who is also a shareholder of National Airline, that we want to see a restoration of uh, financing to assist the national airline in its recovery plans. We'd also want to see uh, opportunities opening up for new coaching opportunities with other airlines and possibility of working with other regional airlines within the region that will help to grow the market share. The second area of concern is uh, looking at the quality of the workforce that is currently available in the industry. Even though we have a uh, labor coalition program to work with the uh, current new workers coming to the workforce. Uh, there needs to be a program of integration where experienced hospitali- hospitality workers that have come abroad to New Zealand and Australia on arrival back in country could be integrated back into the tourism industry. One other area that we will raise to our minister also is uh, the continuous provision of government support services through the business support funds to enable smaller businesses who uh, are diversifying into different models of business to be able to have the required um, funding support to uh, diversify and become resilient. Around three days into the job for the new minister and you've already spoken with him. We have already started uh, commencing discussions over the weekend with our new minister. And he's stepping into this role at a crucial point in Vanuatu tourism's rebuilding process. Do you believe the decisions made now by this government, by this new minister, will play a pivotal role in the success and rebound of the tourism market? Uh, He comes in at a a very critical time, but uh, I believe the minister and his own uh, uh, capability will be able to work with the new government and see what the priorities are and what is of uh, a critical um, area to step into that he will be able to raise it on behalf of, of the industry as well as government, and to be able to assist us in the recovery. So I believe that's a a question that only the minister will be able to provide his uh, actual uh, response here. But um, I believe this minister will have the capability to assist us uh, at this uh, critical time.
Are you relieved that the snap election process is now complete, that there is a government and talks can resume now as to the rebuild process following COVID-19 restrictions and border closures? For, for a country like Vanuatu, um, definitely uh, we, we are happy that at least that uh, the government is able to, to um, complete the process of having a, a government in place. And that's something that the, uh, the government has been able to demonstrate to us that stability is important. Um, so the last couple of, of months with uh, the completion of the uh, SNAP general elections and having a new government now in place, um, we have stability uh, politically uh, with the new government and for them to be able to set the policy directives for the economic recovery of, of the government's um, uh, mandate. So it is something that uh, uh, we, all, we will all work um, together with the new government. And even prior to the new government, we were, we were also very content with the support the previous government was able to provide to us. Pre-COVID, tourism made up about 40% of GDP. Where is that figure sitting at now? So a very good question. We have noted that uh, tourism has, has plummeted. And so um, I wouldn't confirm how much of tourism uh, in terms of economic recovery uh, that tourism now contributes to GDP because our borders have just opened up as of July this year. So our Ministry of Finance is currently undertaking um, economic assessment on this and once uh, that is completed we would be able to provide official stats and, and data concerning this. With more than 50% of businesses closing or mothballing, are you concerned at all at the results that are going to come from this report? Well definitely for any business investor uh, it's quite alarming and it's of concern. It's also a concern for government. Uh, we've noted that uh, even though uh, a lot of businesses were closed post-COVID. We're starting to see that businesses are now improving in the operations. We're also seeing in the last month after our market visits in New Zealand as one of our core tourism markets as well as Australia, that the demand for bookings has now increased. With occupancy rates increasing in the last month alone, where are they sitting at now? So occupancy has now increased to between... 80% to 100% for most of the resorts and accommodation providers that are open. With the return of higher occupancy rates comes the need for more workers. What struggles are businesses in Vanuatu facing at the moment? What is the need? Um, we have uh, more than 50% of our very experienced uh, hospitality workers have travelled abroad um, under the Labour Mobility Programme. And so what we've introduced as of April this year in preparation for border reopening is with the assistance of the uh, Department of Labor, the Australian Pacific Technical College, as well as the uh, New Zealand Ministry of Foreign Affairs, we have set up a tourism labor desk to uh, start the commencement of recruitment and training of uh, young people who are not traveling out but are looking for new job opportunities. So far, we've noted more than 400 people have come through the program. We're training them and putting them through a, an apprenticeship program with the Ministry of Education to be placed in hoteliers, uh, resorts, as well as other restaurants and services businesses to ensure that they have a, an employment opportunity, are trained and will be kept there.
To some sports now, the semi-finalists have been found for the Rugby League World Cup in the UK after a quarter-final round which included some memorable matches. In the final four, New Zealand will play Australia and England will play Samoa. Christina Persico has more on the weekend's quarter-final results. Australia and England easily dispatched their opponents in the first two quarterfinals at the League World Cup, but the other two matches provided more entertainment. The Kiwis were favourites to knock over Fiji, but the Bati gave them a huge fright. Fiji was leading 12-6 at half-time and then extended to 18-6. But the Kiwis came roaring back. A controversial strip penalty put them ahead by two points with fewer than 10 minutes to play, and then Jordan Rapana scored a try at the death. After the match, Rapana paid tribute to Fiji. Yeah, it was obviously good to get the uh, come away with the win, but um, you know we were by far um, far from our best. So uh, there's a lot to take out of uh, you know that game for us. We'll sit down and go through some uh, go through some things this week. And um, but you know credit to to Fiji, man. They came out and they started well. They started fast, and um, we just couldn't match it with them. And then um, ended up getting them in the in the back end. That's Kiwis player Jordan Rapana speaking on Spark Sport. Fiji captain Kevin Naguama told the broadcaster Fiji would be supporting the Kiwis. I just thought um, that try in the last, I think, minute or so really hurt us. Um, we're in that game for the whole 80 minutes and um, just real proud of the boys' efforts. Um, just emotional at the end, um, not getting the win, but uh, New Zealand will deserve winners. Uh, we really wish them all the best and going to be cheering them on for the rest of the tournament. Yeah, um, to all the Fijians out there, Vinakaba level four, your support. Oh, sorry we couldn't get the win, but uh, we hope you did this proud and um, it's only the beginning. The final quarterfinal was set to be a blockbuster and the drama started with Tonga and Samoa both performing a haka practically nose to nose. The score was 12 all with 30 minutes to play. Samoa scored a penalty and a converted try to lead by eight. Tonga came storming home with a try, narrowing the gap to two points. But two points was enough. Inside the final ten seconds then. Never been to a World Cup final before, a semi-final before. Samoa are there in 2022, the 2021 Rugby League World Cup. They have upset the form book. Tonga are out. Samoa march on. Samoa heading for the semi-finals for the first time in their history. That's Samoa's moment in the sun on Spark Sport. Coach Matt Parrish told the broadcaster there was very little in it. Oh, there wasn't much between either team, was there? Uh, just tenacious defence in the end, wasn't it? The one at Tonga certainly threw plenty at us, but uh, you know there wasn't nothing in it between either team. They now face the challenge of hosts England, who beat them heavily in round one in the semi-final next weekend. Also in the UK, the Women's League World Cup has seen England, Papua New Guinea, New Zealand and Australia taking victories in round two. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Fafatai Telelava, Tofa Soifua.